teaches in the university over here, but she says in America now there's... And she, and she, no, she's had to do this actually a couple of times and say with certain books, before we study this book, I have to let you know that there are the following scenes that might upset people. It's called that might a trigger check. warning. A trigger anyway, warning. Anyway, and what's that term? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I've forgotten it. Um, oh my gosh, my husband went and gave a talk at a university and he talked about the fact that he just is not on board with this idea that college students can't be exposed to ideas that they find personally upsetting. And a young woman came up to him afterwards and said, I find it personally upsetting. What is it called? It's such a funny term. It's like soft aggression. or. And I was talking, there's a wonderful writer, humorist in the United States, Roy Blunt Jr. And he was, he was saying, oh gosh, I'm so upset. I can't remember this term because it's so hilarious. We were having a conversation over dinner and he said that, did you know that an example of that kind of speech is saying to someone, where are you from? I'm like, what? And he's like, you know, it's like, it, it is getting out of hand. And I do think there are some overcoddled young people. And, you know, when it gets, yeah. I mean, sometimes you do need a trigger warning. I mean, some things really are truly disturbing. With all these shootings in the U.S., now they're always, there's always film. And some people are like, it shouldn't, be shown at all because I used to work in journalism I'm not comfortable with any sort of censorship but I'm like you know what I don't want to see that on a loop I don't want that to be on CNN every time that is something where I feel like it should be accessible by choice through their website it's like they should put it up on the web and say this is the video of the shooting you're clicking through to watch a video of a shooting, mm. you know, check here that you're on board. To, um, so I might, I mean, and I know that in staking out that ground, my husband is just like, no, it's news. It gets to be shown, you know, no censorship. And I'm like, yeah, but I didn't turn on CNN because I didn't want to see that. So, but... The way you draw the line, I mean, you know, to some extent that... In some of these are interesting sorts of questions I was thinking about reading the, the book. Because I think you're so adroit at um, what can be said and what, what is left unsaid, and that's partly the skill of being a, a plotter, you know, a crime writing plotter, um, and partly because of the, the culture that you, that you were talking about in, in Colombia, where obviously, obviously there were things that were. N- not not allowed to be said, but which we rather weren't being said because we should all be on board with it. I mean, I suppose there are families where everything is said. I didn't grow up in one. I grew up in a family with so many secrets and so many things that were somehow not to be discussed. Um, my mother never really knew her biological father. Her parents were divorced by the time she was a year old. And as long as her mother was alive... It was understood that this is not to be discussed. And my mother was adopted by her stepfather and considered him her father. And it was only upon her mother's death, which unfortunately was relatively early in her 60s, that my mother then set out to find her biological father. And she found out she had half-sisters she never knew about. But having located these people, it was again, she wanted to have no relationship with them. So she had come up understanding, I don't talk about this while my mother's alive. And I'm still not like, like sure of the boundaries. 
about where do, where do we, does my mom want to be asked about this? And I think she kind of does, but you know, I was brought up by Southern parents. So don't ask anybody their age. Never talk about money. Never, ever talk about money. Um, I'm trying to think of the other things here. I think part of the reason I became a journalist is because it gave me license to ask all these questions that I've been told my entire life not to ask. I got to ask people how much money they made. I got to ask them how old they were. You know, I got to ask you know, sometimes really rude and you know obnoxious questions depending upon who I was talking to. And I, I don't know many people who didn't grow up with some off-limit topic. This does make you sound like a fairly dead ringer for Louisa Brand. Re- remix. You know, but... I have no trouble owning my connection to her. Okay. And it's funny because starting by writing a series book, early on, everyone decided I was Tess Monaghan. Totally cool with me. Tess is fantastic. And actually, we do agree on almost everything. Like, I'm not allergic to shellfish. And, <laughs> you know, there are a lot, but we actually have very different family backgrounds and we are very different in temperament. So that has given me this enormous license to write very autobiographically in my standalones because everyone thinks I'm Tess Monaghan. And, you know, Lou Brandt comes onto the scene and she's, you know, very short and has a very different life from mine. And it was really hilarious to me because, of course, inevitably, you know, the, the conversation that's going to break out whenever you write a book with a really tough female is, is she likable? Uh-huh. And I like immediately feel like, I don't like Lou Brandt. I'm like, I think that's funny because she's really based on me and I think I'm pretty likable. <laughs> but it was like, yes, I am absolutely as competitive as Lou. I mean, I have the same, you know, it's hard to talk about. I, it is impossible for me to imagine what the book Wild Lake would be like if my father had not died very early in the writing of it. Which, what's that incredible line in the rabbit books by Updike? That's the thing about the dead, they make space. Interesting. You know, and my dad was kind of not my dad the last three years of his life. Um, although I saw him two months before he died and he still knew who I was and still recognized his granddaughter. But um, So you'd think that would have... I would have been free anyway, knowing that my dad had gotten to a point where he wasn't going to be able to read my novel. But I thought, oh, you know, I did. It was like some well-meaning person will say to my dad, what do you think about the fact that this is so clearly based on you? So there was a liberation in it. And so it was very much... So the father in the book is very much... He's... The idea of that thing you wrestle with your father, which is he's your hero, and then you're like, yeah, but he's a man of his generation. He's a man of his times. Men of their times. That phrase has been all over the place in the United States. And my beloved New Orleans, they voted to take down all the Confederate statues. And I'm okay with that. I mean, I I would argue and ta Coates, I think, agrees with me that contextualization is better than just hiding or obscuring, but okay. But it, it tickles me because then I say to my friends, Sue, so what are you going to do about that statue of Andrew Jackson overlooking Jackson Square? It's like, iconic. And I'm like, well, that's different because he saved New Orleans. I'm like, you know he was a hideous man. Mm-hmm. And then I think one of the funniest things that's happened in the United States is they were really determined to put a woman on the currency. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, we're going to do the $10 bill. 
because that's not a president, that's Alexander Hamilton. And then I say, and then a Puerto Rican man wrote a musical. <laughs> and Hamilton's <laughs> reputation was so resurrected by Lynn Manuel Miranda that like, okay, we're gonna take Jackson off the $20 bill because he was kind of a hateful, you know, warmongering, you know, <laughs> destroyer of the Native American population. <laughs> This is like the most hilarious, like political correct correctness rondelet. You know, it's like, you know, where these. I just think it's funny, and I, I just do think it's funny. It's like, and I, and I'm like, yeah, Robert E. Lee should probably not be at one of the most prominent places in New Orleans, but like maybe like form this like little park that's nothing but like, and like take them all down off their pedestals and have really good signage that really explains. You know, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do with, you know, um, I think everybody has, I know New Orleans has um, Jefferson Davis. Okay. You know, Virginia has a, you know, we're like, okay, you know, what are you, we're going to rename everything? Like, you're going to rename everything and then someone's going to come along a hundred years from now and they're going to say, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I feel that Martin Luther King Jr.'s Secret life may, renders him unfit to have a street named after him. It's like it, the standards keep moving, and I love to tell this story about. I had sent Wildlife to my editor. I still had much work to do, but it was off my desk for a while. And I took my daughter and her slightly older friend to the Museum of Natural History, and you know, a place in New York that I just think of it as the most wonderful place in the world. And I walk in there with an eight-year-old girl who looks around and said, "Did these animals used to be alive?" I'm like, yeah. And she said, and they were shot, and they were stuffed. This is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. And I stood there and, you know, in the museum, and I said, you know what? The thing is, is right now, today, we're telling jokes, we're using language, we're making terrible assumptions about people based on an inadequate knowledge of brain chemistry. We're doing something right now, today, that's going to seem despicable in 50 years, 40 years, 30 years, 20, maybe even 10. And the problem is we can't even begin to guess what it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was so pleased when my husband read the book that he did zero in on the line that to me was the key line in the book, which is the present is filled with self-regard. Yeah, that's right. I, funny enough, I've got a big bookmark. Yeah. <laughs> hang on. Hang on. I was actually thinking, I was half thinking about getting you to read it, actually. Um, we do have to mention Bill Clinton keeping it in his pants, but... Um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, would, that, would it be possible yeah, to, I'll to read that section. section? We always want our heroes to be better than their times, to hold the enlightened views we have achieved 150, 10 years later. We want Jefferson to free his slaves and not to father children with any of them. We want Lindbergh to keep Lindbergh sounds weird to me. We want Lindbergh to keep his Nazi sympathies to himself. We want Bill Clinton to keep it in his pants. Martin Luther King Jr. too. And that's just what we expect of the men. The present is swollen with self-regard for itself, but soon enough the present becomes the past. This present, this day, this very moment we inhabit, it all will be held accountable for the things it didn't know, didn't understand. Just the idea of your books sort of entering that kind of uh, time zone and being read perhaps in fifty years' time. Does that is that something that that kind of that you that you I, think about that? But you know, that 
I love that question. I love that you ask it because this actually goes to something a teeny bit off topic. But do I think about my books being read after I'm gone? Yes, but I'm also really cool with the fact that I won't know and I don't control it. <laughs> and I, I sincerely believe that you know we have this never-ending genre war, or we have people who are invis- invested in the never-ending genre war. A lot of literary writers don't care. A lot of crime writers don't care. But you'll find people on both sides who just want to argue so vociferously about which one really matters. And what are we really arguing about? We're arguing about the biggest stakes of all is whose work is going to be read posthumously. And when we look at what survived so far, Mm -hmm. we realize that some of our great classic writers were not particularly um, well-received in their time. They were popular writers. You know, some people are like, well, you know, you, you, you know that they're literary writers who just want to faint at the idea that maybe Stephen King's the one who's going to be writing sure. in 100 years. But it, I think this is what explains the tension because we're, the stakes are in a game that none of us are going to see to the end. Oh my gosh, I would, you know, if somehow someone can like come from the future and tell me that, hey, guess what? You know, there's a Laura Lippman book on a shelf in a library even a hundred years from now, I'll be thrilled. I'll be really surprised too, if I'm being honest. There's so many good books, and there's so many good books that did drift into being out of print or do get lost. I mean, I think one of the great, great technological advantages of digital books is we shouldn't have to lose as many books because, you know, there's infinite space. But then how do you find them? You know, who talks about them? Who still gets read? Yeah, I'd love it. But boy, I... It seems presumptive. I think you have to write as if you think that way. But all of writing is arrogance. It's totally arrogant to write a novel. We have enough good ones. Everyone can just stop right now. We haven't... I mean, the only thing that the current crop of novels can't do is speak to you know if we stop now you know 10 years now we're going to want novels that speak to the times we're in I got so excited the other day um, I was in a bookshop here and I found that um, Joanne Rakoff who had written the wonderful memoir My Salinger Year so she had a novel that she wrote in 2009 that they've brought out again which I didn't even know existed and it's about young people in Brooklyn in the early 1990s and it feels like historical fiction now it feels like I'm in, and I'm I'm loving it and it's like so this is what Brooklyn was like uh, before before it became the Brooklyn we now know and satirize and I'm reading it at the same time I'm reading Modern Lovers by Emma Straub which is about I, why this interests me so much I don't even live in Brooklyn but I, you know so there are enough novels so you have to be arrogant to write a novel at all you have to be arrogant to think you have anything to say you have to be arrogant to hope that you're one of the ones who's still on the bookshelf. I'm sure a lot of people know that your husband is David Simon. One of the fascinating things was about the wire was friends of mine were saying, who are these who are these writers? And I say you don't know who George Carlos <laughs> or I mean, Richard Price, they found hard to know that people didn't know who he was. Um, George Polycarnos or Dennis I remember talking to Lahane yeah. about and interviewed him about um, about his work but also about working on the white but it just seems to be this moment where suddenly crime fiction was just given a little but, and it seemed to be quite deliberate that, that, that certain writers were being asked to, to, to contribute and I, remember, I remember asking Michael Connolly about 
about these sort of quick questions. You said, well, we're the, we're the, the heirs of the sort of social realists of, of Absolutely. Do you still feel that kind of divide between... No, as a matter of fact, I think the literary novelists are coming back to embrace the social novel. Okay. Which, and as someone who, like, one of my heroes is Dreiser, I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> but it was, it was like the social novel was sort of like this little dusty toy that had been left on the shelf, and the crime novelist tottered over and got it, and then the, the big literary novelist go, give me back, that's mine. <laughs> like, I'm playing with it now. You can't have the social novel back. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you th- is? Is that because the because people are, have perhaps started to take I th- crime fiction more seriously? The fact that perhaps we feel is it a deeper feeling that we feel lost? We don't quite know where we are. A, a um, quite a, a quite a lot, not all, but a, quite a bit of literary fiction. And I read a lot of literary fiction was being produced by people who taught at universities, often had tenure. The absence of money in literary fiction is something that fascinates me. It's not just crime, it's just sort of the absence of how do you make a living, and I'm, I love novels about money, and there's started to be really good novels about money. Mm-hmm. I'm going to forget the title because I do. There's a book I loved, John Lancaster. Oh, Capital. Capital, yeah. I loved Capital. Yeah. What a, because tr- it's, like, it's, it's like every social stratum, and, uh, it was a fantastic vehicle for telling a story about a way a place is now. Yeah. And but there's you know and money is essential to Madame Bovary. But like you like, you know you read these books and there's like no none of that tension of how do you pay your bills and they're, they're novels where people are privileged to do a lot of navel gazing and have a lot of existential angst and but not a lot of awareness of how life is lived day to day. And I think it was because it was being produced by people who didn't have to think about those things. And, I, and so I think crime writers like, okay, race came in first. If you're living in an American city and you're not thinking about race, you're being really dishonest. So, you know, Pelicanos, of course, in particular, but, you know, I'm, I'm in Baltimore. It's, it's, a, it's two-thirds African-American. If I don't write about race, I'm being completely disingenuous. You know, Dennis Lehane in Boston, same thing. So I've always said this. You know, people say, are you a crime novelist? Absolutely, absolutely, I am a crime novelist. This genre can do anything. Notice I'm not saying I can do anything, but the genre absolutely can do anything. Right? You know the other thing a lot of us have in common? I know this is true of Pelicanus, Lahane, and me. Also of Harlan Coben. Mm. We were all huge fans of James Crumley. <laughs> we, and it was sort of like in the 80s when his books were published by that um, vintage paperback line. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, you know, and there's an age range, so, you know, Dennis is like a teenager, but I'm in my 20s, and... You know, Harlan is, you know, maybe 18 and George is a teeny bit older than I am. We were all independently discovering these novels and saying, the crime novel can do this. Uh. The crime, and we all got to, I mean, George, Dennis, and my husband David and I all flew to Missoula, Montana to just do a tribute panel to Jim after he died. We loved the guy. I mean, I only met him in person three or four times in my life but I adored him and 
one time I got to interview him for a fanzine, and it's like one of my fondest memories that I, and it was total gem. He was, <laughs> he was high on French vodka that he was taking. He'd just been from the dentist, and he's like, so I'm drinking French vodka through a straw because I've just been to the dentist. And he, and he gave a beauty, and he was one of the most generous, kind men. I mean, he's a problematic guy because I'm friends with people who knew him when he was much younger and more of a, a wild ass. Like Les Standiford in the States, who's a good friend of mine, taught with Jim. But anyway, I really think it's actually significant that you have this group of writers all independently finding their way to Jim Crumley's work and looking at it and saying, this is a crime novel. It's as good as any literary novel I've ever read. Why not be a crime novelist? Especially if you love them. And I love crime novels. And I always tell people that one of the things I loved about the crime novel is, is that it didn't function as some sort of um, intellectual shorthand. It was like, you know, you tuck that copy of Infinite Jest under your arm and you're sort of like, hi, look at me, I'm reading Infinite Jest. Yes, this tells you everything. And you walk around with your little battered copy of James and Cain or mm-hmm. you know, Carl Hyacin, mm-hmm. which is a Walter Mosley, and you people are like, oh, it's a beach read. You know what I say about beach reads? Beaches are beautiful places. If a book can keep your yeah. interest on the beach, it's a darn good read, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny the way certain writers actually keep coming. You know, that we did, I just watched the end of Justified. Uh, the, not yet. Oh, I'm, Elmer Leonard oh, is my role model. That's the guy I, I want to be. A very nice little touch at the end of, which I'm not spoiling. Yeah, please But do. there's a little mention of uh, George Higgins. There's a little, where he uh, hands over George Higgins' novel. I love it. And it was just very, very, I thought it was very nice. And I thought, oh, this is all, it's all mine. This is more of a George Pelicano story than anything. But one time, Elmer Leonard, and we'd done some things together, and he's written me nice letters. He came up to me in an award ceremony and told me that the last time we'd been together, he'd spent a great deal of time thinking about how cute my nose was. And so I told the story to George, and he said, yeah, Laura, I think he was pretty tanked. <laughs> That's a classic George story. <laughs> yeah, I think it was pretty tanked. Can I ask one final question, which is, so what next? So you, you're still... Uh, we sort of me- we kind of meandered through one. I like, know, that's we, how I do it. I like it. No, this, this is perfect. So what next? What, what do you want to... Um... You know, it's like you find yourself changing before you even acknowledge the change yourself. And after years of writing novels that were very much inspired by true-life crimes of my Baltimore youth, I realized that I kind of wandered into rethinking... Um, novels and in one case a play or they're very important to me Hush Hush Celeste Tess Monaghan novel was actually very much a meditation on Medea mm-hmm. like what do you think about Medea what's she thinking about in the final moments Wildlife has this huge debt to To Kill a Mockingbird my next book is this very strange literary mashup imagine the postman always rings twice but with the genders reversed so that the beautiful stranger is a woman passing through town there's a book by Ann Tyler, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, called A Ladder of Years, 1995. Mm-hmm. Okay, women love this novel because it's, a, and it's an Ann Tyler novel. It's beautiful, it's funny, it's profound. It's, I mean, Ann Tyler is a goddess to me. And it's about a woman who gets so fed up with her own family that she stands up on a beach one day and walks away from them and reinvents her life. She's like, bye. And it's hilarious. If you think about it, that is one of the darkest, darkest things that ever happened. That's a noir idea. So I've, I'm mashing those two things together. A beautiful woman has stood up and walked away from her family on a beach in Delaware in 1995, 
and she is dropped off in a small town near the state line where she it turns out that quite a few people are looking for her and and she will you know it's all there and it's really I'm I'm having a blast okay <laughs> thank you very much thank you this is so much it was fun it's a real pleasure